Hello, people of the way. Uh, today is our uh, Wednesday uh, Bible study, and we're going to continue through the word in Exodus 36. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn with me to Exodus 36. And here you have the continuation of where we left off last week, where Moses is still giving his instructions that he received from the Lord. Remember, that's what's so beautiful about intimacy with the Lord is that it's not just, you know, Moses walking around like, wow, look how cool I am. It's Moses that is being poured into by the Lord in his intimacy with the Lord. Uh, and, and, and you see how, you know, when when uh, when the Lord says of Moses, you know, how the, how the Lord spoke to him as a man speaks to his friend. It's very, very intimate. But then at the same time, you know, the Lord pours into Moses and then now Moses is pouring into the people. And that's what's so beautiful about intimacy with God. It's not so that we can walk around and be like, wow, look how cool I am. Look how cool we are. We are the elite class. We are the establishment. You know, that's the, uh, 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 the error of fools. Is to say, wow, you know, the Lord has poured into me. The Lord has poured into, you know, uh, like all the work that the Lord is doing. And it's like, wow, now I'm going to go out and share that with other people. That's the mentality of a Christian. Because remember, you know, it's like, you know, to love the Lord and then love people. But, you know, a lot of times you hear that a lot in ministries where people say, you know, love God and love people, which is it's beautiful. But always, 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 always make sure it's in proper order. Because when you start to love people and then love God, is that's a bad equation. When you take God and you put him on, you know, the, the lower prong, so to speak. He is preeminent. Always, for the rest of your life, Jesus Christ must be preeminent in your lives, in your hearts. He must be. No matter what, who cares what people have to say? Love God first, above all things, above all people. Love God, number one. And then number two, love people. Because people are fickle. You see that in Moses, in Moses' era. You see the people, they're like, you know, Moses comes and tells the people, you know, like, you know, the Lord has called me to rescue you out of Egypt. And then what happened? They said, oh, you know, you're so dumb, Moses. You're so stupid. That's so crazy. Look, you know, we're in Egypt. How can these things be? You're so stupid. You're so crazy. And if Moses had the equation wrong or he loved people over God, he would say, well, you're right, guys. You're right. You know, that was just crazy. You know, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, I learned from this guy. I learned from this book I read how the Lord, how he moves. That was for 2000 years ago. It's not for today. So you're right. Garbage doesn't work that way. Love God first over all things, over all people. He is preeminent. That's a choice. You, me, everybody who claims the name of Jesus Christ, proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, has a choice to make in his or her heart. Jesus Christ is preeminent in my life. And you'll see the fruit of those choices. People can say, oh yeah, Jesus Christ is number one in my life. Oh, let me introduce you to, you know, wife number five. Oh yeah, Jesus Christ is number one in my life. Oh, don't mind these needles in my arm. No, it doesn't work that way. 
When Jesus Christ is preeminent in your life and you have intimacy with him and you're obedient to his word, you'll see the fruit for sure. As surely as the Lord lives, you'll see the fruit. People will see the fruit and they'll wonder. Some will say, wow, you know, what is that? I want that in my life. And some will be jealous and say, well, I want to kill that guy. I want to kill that girl. It's Old Testament, New Testament. We're going to see these things, you know, further exemplified in the lives of people in the Bible, male, female, old, young. It doesn't matter. And you see Moses here in verse one of chapter 36 of Exodus. He's, you know, he's giving these instructions from the Lord. In verse 30 or verse one, notice the quotation here. He's speaking to, he says, and Bezalel and Aholiab. You know what's so cool? Remember in the previous chapter in verse 34 says that, and he speaking about the Lord and he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. These are things that the Lord has put in these people, Bezalel and Aholiab, the ability to teach. But here in chapter 36, verse 1, Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan. Notice that Moses isn't alone anymore. All these previous chapters, you see like, man, Moses, he's all by himself. And so, okay, he's got Aaron now. And then, you know, you look at the bottom of the mountain, Aaron, he's with the golden calf. Man, Moses is definitely all by himself. And then you keep reading, turn the page, turn the page. Wow, Moses isn't alone anymore. And it's not him saying, you know, like, hey, you will do this. He's not lording over anybody's faith. He's not, you know, compelling anybody to do anything. It says in chapter 35, verse 34, and he, capital H, the Lord, and he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach. And, you know, in this particular verse, he's speaking about Bezalel, Bezalel and Aholiab. And so you have Moses is no longer alone. You have Bezalel, Aholiab, and every gifted artisan, still in verse 1 of 36, in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding. He does the same thing today. He does the same thing what we read in the book of Acts. He does the same thing. Remember, there was that need that arose in the church, and the apostles said, Choose from among you seven men. It's not just choose from among you seven schmuckatellis. Oh, they don't have to be in the church. They can just be whoever, you know, this guy walking on the street. Choose that guy. Oh, yeah, this guy, he has a good background in, in whatever, you know, he's a good speaker. So, you know, use that guy. He's not even a Christian. Oh, there's this girl. She's got a killer voice. She sings really well. You know, choose her off the street and put her in your as a worship leader. Because she has a good voice. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. The apostle says, choose seven men from among you that have good report, you know, a good witness for the Lord and have wisdom and understanding full of the Holy Spirit. It's not just anybody. And you know, wisdom and understanding things Holy, these are things that are gained 
with maturity in Christ. You look at the biggest dummy on the planet. And then you look at that person who comes to the knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And look at what happens with that guy. Look at what happens with that girl in the course of time. Five years later. Ten years later. Twenty years later. Look at the apostles, beautiful men of the Lord. But then at the same time, hit the rewind button. And what do you see? They're fishers, fishermen. And remember, fishermen in those days was kind of like low society. It was like, man, you know, I can't go to college. I don't have a good education. I dropped out in elementary school. What can I do? I guess I'll just be a fisherman. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ, they have an encounter with Jesus Christ. It wasn't on the Damascus Road. But it's an encounter with Jesus Christ, nevertheless. That's what's so beautiful about these encounters with Jesus Christ. And these divine appointments with Jesus Christ. You see, it's like, wow, you know, I don't have wisdom. I don't have understanding. You read, you know, Proverbs. Get wisdom, exclamation point. Get understanding, exclamation point. How does that happen? Yielding to the word of God. You have all these preconceived notions about this, that, whatever. And then you read the Bible and you say, Lord, not my will, thy will. I will change my preconceived notion into what your thoughts are on the matter. That's called yielding to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You say, what do you mean, Jesus Christ? It's just the Bible. No, it's not just the Bible. The Word became flesh. You yield to Him. And He does the work inside of your heart, inside of your mind. And so it says here, The Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary or of the holy place. The holy place. We live in a generation today, a culture today, where we've lost the notion, we've lost the concept of holiness. What does holiness look like? What do you mean a holy place? What does holiness look like? And that's the work of the enemy. Who has caused defiling in homes, defilement in hearts, defilement in minds. That's the work of the enemy. But then at the same time, it's to say, you know, when a, a person believes in Jesus Christ, it's like the work of the enemy is like you take his wrench, you take his henchmen, you take his demons, and you throw them in the trash. The Lord throws them in the trash. That's why these spiritual vacations, you know, uh, metaphysically speaking, these spiritual vacations, it's not good to do. Because you read the exhortation of the Lord, what we studied in the book of Matthew, and it's like, you know, the demons are thrown away. The demons go, you know, they, they, they're kicked out. And when you take a spiritual vacation, meta metaphysically speaking, you're not working out, spiritually speaking. You're not lifting weights, spiritually speaking. You're not learning how to carry a shield, how to hold a sword. And not just hold a sword, but to use the sword. Yield and wield the sword. And then all of a sudden these demons come back. 
And the one demon comes back, he brings his homies with him that are worse than him. And these spiritual vacations can be very detrimental in the life of a believer. And it says that the worst, that person, it ends up being worse than it was at the beginning. It's like, wow, look, the Lord saved me from drugs. The Lord saved me from sex. The Lord saved me from alcohol. Oh, cool, yes. Um, you know, once saved, always saved. I don't have to go to church anymore. I don't have to read the Bible anymore. I don't have to yield to him. Yeah, the Bible is just a book of suggestions. I don't have to obey him. And when that demon comes back with other demons that are worse than him, I lose the fight. And when I lose the fight, the depths of depravity come out worse. You see, spiritual warfare. But who wants to fight? Who wants to fight? I don't want to fight. Are you a Christian? Yeah, well, you're in the fight, buddy. Surprise. You're in the fight. You see, and the Lord is providing all these things. The Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. End quote. Moses is, you know, he's explaining these things to the people. Wisdom and understanding for the task in the days ahead. The Lord did the same thing in the early church. The Lord is doing the same thing in the latter-day church. The church of the last days. I'm not advocating Mormonism. The latter-day saint movement. That's garbage. False doctrine, false theology. The doctrine of demons. I'm talking about the Holy Word of God and what the Bible says about the last day's church. Wisdom and understanding. You know what's so cool about, you know, not cool about the golden calf that Moses saw when he came down from the mountain, but the aftermath of it when the people have repented. You know, you see this deep, you know, it's, it's not about religion. It's not, you know, I don't know how else to say this. I mean, I'm not thankful for the golden calf, but what I'm thankful for is how all things work together for the purpose of the Lord. A broken heart, you know, it, how do I say this? Like, sin, the aftermath of sin. There's something beautiful to that. And I know that sounds crazy, but picture like a war-torn landscape. Everything's just destroyed, you know, white phosphorus has been raining down, everything's just burned and just total destruction. Napalm the whole nine yards. And then the rains come, the rains go, the rains come, the rains go. Things get washed away. And then all of a sudden on this desolate land, you see a little sprout of green coming up from the ground. Then you see more little sprouts of green coming up from the land. 
Then you see a flower start to open up and blossom. Then you look and you see another one, another one. You see the green gets bigger, bigger. The little tree starts to grow. The tree gets bigger, pollinates the whole nine yards. Birds start to come. They find shelter in the, in the trees. They eat of the, the berries. The birds come, the animals start to come, and it's like, wow, you know, this used to be a war-torn, desolate place, but look at it now. It's beautiful and it's gorgeous. It's like, wow, this is peace. That's what I mean when I talk about the aftermath of sin, the aftermath of the golden calf. You know, if Moses came down and started, you know, no offense to Moses, but if he came down and just says, okay, guys, you know, I'm going to start dictating this to you, this to you, this to you, and the people go out and do it. But there's something going on in the heart where it's, um, it's, I don't know how to say it. It's just, uh, I shouldn't say something going on in the heart. Maybe I should say there's something not going on in the heart. Because that would be religion. Take Paul, for example, in the early church and even for the church today. If Paul said, you know, well, if you want to be a good Christian, you got to do this, 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 this. And if you do all these things, there's 10 items on the checklist. If you can check off all these things, then you're good to go. But then what if he just makes a strong case when you read his epistles? And he says, I urge you, brethren, to do these things. Brethren, my brothers, my sisters, I urge you to not do these things. Then instead of a you know 10-item checklist, it becomes a heart matter. It becomes a matter of my heart, of your heart, of where you know it's not about religion. It's now a love, a deep, deep love relationship, not religion. You know, like in, in the book of Luke chapter 7, verse 47 says, Those who are forgiven much, love much. And those who are forgiven little, love little. Think about the forgiveness of the golden calf. Forgiven much. I'm not trying to say, like, you know, when Paul writes in Romans and he says, does that mean we should sin, sin more so that grace can abound? I say, no way, exclamation point. But those who are forgiven much, love much. You see it exemplified in the church today. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. It's... The dichotomy of human nature, there's one side. The other side of that is the dichotomy of human nature that is given over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, you know, like drug, like there's like four pastors that I absolutely love and adore. 
if the Lord didn't call me to be a pastor, I would specifically, you know, say, hey, baby, we're moving over here. We're moving to, you know, this part. We're moving to Southern California. We're moving to Texas. We're moving to Northern California. We're moving to, you know, maybe even the UK. I, I wouldn't do the UK. Well, you know, maybe I would. I don't know. But there's certain pastors that I absolutely love. And what's so cool, it's like, you know, all these men, when I hear their testimonies, there's a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of sex. And then all of a sudden, the Lord took their lives. And it's like, because they were forgiven much, they love much. Now, it's not to say, oh, yeah, go out and do these things so that you can be forgiven much and you can love much. No, you know, that's the that's the stupid thinking. But it's to say, look how the Lord can take a life and transform a life and then use a life just like he did with Moses and just like he can do with anybody. Look at, we're just starting. We're at the very, you know, precipice of, you know, this our study of Saul in the New Testament. Who will have a name change pretty soon? Who was forgiven much? And then you look at his ministries. He goes on his first missionary journey, his third, his second, you know, and he does all these things. And then finally, all the uh, the disciples in Jerusalem, they try to hold him back. The elders, they try to hold him back. Don't go to Rome. Don't go to Rome. They're going to kill you. And what did Paul do? He goes to Rome. What did Nero do? Killed him. Chopped off his head. He counted his life as nothing. And it's so cool because you start to see like, you know, these, this is how the Lord works. His ways are not your ways. His ways are not my ways. His ways are his ways. The Lord is the one who's doing the work. Moses isn't alone anymore. And you're about to see, you know, uh, Aaron too and his sons. They start to partake in, you know, of the of the uh, worship in the tabernacle. But right now the, the tabernacle is being constructed. And so look at, you know, verse 2. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom. Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. You know, speaking about that heart matter that I was, you know, not religion, but, you know, a love relationship with the Lord. It's so cool what we see here in verse 2 when he says, In whose heart the Lord had put wisdom. Everyone whose heart was stirred. Yes, there's this mighty work that has to happen and that will happen and that the Lord said would happen. There's this mighty work, but it's not about the work at all. It's about the heart. I'll give you an example. Say we were pew Christians. We're sitting in a pew of a church that has 100 people. Okay? And we're sitting next to you. And then all of a sudden, you see the pastor. He's at the pulpit. He steps to the side a little bit. The co-pastor stands up, goes to the pulpit and says, okay, we have a big church project. 
you know, we're, we're going to clean the church. The church is going to gather together and we're going to clean the church. And, you know, we're going to get it prepared for whatever, you know. We're going to vacuum, deep clean, do all kinds of things, wipe the windows down, you know, wash it down from the outside power hose or whatever. And then this person says, if you want to be a part of what God is doing, then, you know, you'll show up. We're going to do it on a Saturday. You'll show up if you want to be a part of what God is doing, kind of giving the people a little guilt trip. And then an old guy stands up and says, well, you know, I'm 80 years old. And if I'm going to be here, you know, everybody better be here. I better be see the young whippersnappers here. Another guilt trip. And so Saturday comes and you see all these people. Okay, we're here. We're ready to do this work. And, you know, people start working, cleaning, doing all these things. And then on Sunday, we come to church and we have a brand new shiny church. Nice and clean. You think from the outside, okay, mission accomplished. We did it. Good to go, right? But what happens inside the heart? You know, Saturday during the working party, you know, you might have, you know, a husband who says, okay, everybody get in the car. We're going to go out and go to church. Do these. You have kids. They're like, oh, man, you know, I want to hang out with my friends, a daughter. Oh, yeah, I was supposed to go to the mall today. Or, you know, whatever. A wife who says, no, I'm supposed to get my nails done. A husband, oh, I'm supposed to watch the football. The games, I'm supposed to watch this. But I'll go, you know, that old guy at church, he's going to be there. And I was shamed to do come. And so I don't want to be here, but I'm here anyways. Yeah, I'll wipe windows down. No big deal. But what if somebody stood up in the church when the announcement was made? And says, you know, we want to clean the church. But if you don't want to show up, it's totally okay. Don't show up. In fact, if there's any little centimeter of anything in your heart that says, I don't want to show up. If you want to watch football, watch your football. You want to go to the mall? Go to the mall. You want to get your nails done? You want to hang out with your homies? Do it. But if anybody wants to come, then come. I wonder, a church of 100 people, how many would show up on a Saturday? Just to say, you know, I'm not getting paid for this, but we're going to clean the church. We're going to clean the sanctuary. We're going to wipe things down. And not like, oh, you know, I'm doing this for free. Look how awesome I am. Not for like, you know, look how holy we are, we're cleaning the church. Not like, oh, I'm going to wipe this window way better than you can ever do it. Look how awesome I am. But no, service unto the Lord. You know, remember, you know, it's, yes, there's a work of the Lord. But never, ever, ever, ever forget about the Lord of the work. Never. That's what you see what's happened with Methodist churches. 
Lutheran churches. You see it, it's already begun in Baptist churches, denominations. And in the last days, you're seeing it more and more and more. Uh, defection away from truth. Where it's like you look at the very beginnings of, you know, uh, uh, the Methodist church. You look at the very early beginnings of the Wesleyan, John Wesley. You look at the very beginnings, you're like, wow, this is beautiful. This is awesome. You look at the early beginnings of the Anabaptists. Who were martyred by the Calvinists. In fulfillment of what they wrote, what the Calvinists followed in accordance with the institutes of the Christian religion. In accordance with the teachings of John Calvin. Garbage. Look at Geneva. It's all, it's, it's history. You can't change history even though people want to change history. It's all there. It's, you've seen the fruit of it. But people don't like to... There's a lot of shameful things in history. A lot of ugliness in history. But what happens when, you know, you look at the Methodist church where, you know, they might have started where, you know, God first and then, you know, love God and then love people. But in the course of time, something happens where it's like, okay, love people and then love God. Oh, yeah, let's love people. So we're going to, you know, come on, come on. Oh, yeah, we're going to baptize you know, homosexuals. We have a, trans, uh, a transgender pastor. You know, we have all these things. It's to say, no, come one, come all, except when you come one, come all, you're going to get truth. Because I love God more than people. That's what should happen in a church. That's what should happen in a Methodist church, a Lutheran church, and a Baptist church. That's what should happen. Yeah, we love you. As a church body, you know, it's like we love the people. But above that, in the hierarchy of things, the structure, we love God, number one. And his word and his truth. You see, it's, it's not about the work per se, even though the work has to get done. It's about the Lord of the work. It's about the heart. Remember, the Lord sees the heart. He tests the mind. Just like we read a couple weeks ago with, about um, Simon in the book of Acts, chapter 8. We just read about it. How the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, except he bypassed one. He bypassed Simon. Why? His heart wasn't, wasn't right before the Lord. That's not to say that, you know, the Holy Spirit bypasses a person one day. That's not to say that this person, you know, whoever it is, you know, is ostracized from the Holy Spirit forever. It's to say, you know, repent. Fall on your face before the Lord. Fall on your knees before the Lord. Say, Lord, forgive me. Yeah, you know what? I have anger in my heart. Yes, Lord, I have bitterness in my heart. And you know what? I give it to you, Lord. I don't want it. I don't want this anger. I don't want this bitterness because you know what? I live that. And the fruit was ugly. The fruit was disgusting. 
I don't want to go that way anymore. And so here, Lord, it's yours. That's what I mean about the beauty of, not the beauty of the golden calf or the beauty of sin, but the beauty of the aftermath. When you can say, Lord, I'm done with the crack pipe. Lord, I'm no longer cooking spoons like I used to. I'm done with the alcohol. I'm done with the pornography. I'm done with the sexual adventures. I give it to you, Lord. And you see just desolation all over the place. And then it's given over to the Lord. And then what do you see in the heart of a man, in the heart of a woman? You start to see desolation, but then you start to see the little sprout come up from the ground. In the course of time, what was once desolation is now lush fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens with maturity in Christ. That's what happens with following the Lord and walking with Him. Not just for the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. You take your last breath here in this world, and then you open up your eyes, you breathe your first, you breathe anew in paradise. What do you mean paradise? Remember the thief on the cross? Remember me when you enter your kingdom. He says, I tell you the truth, you will be with me this day in paradise. Can you imagine hearing those words from Jesus Christ? Today you will be with me in paradise. It's like, whoa, it's like, kill me now. Put a spear in my heart. And you know, the Lord might not say, today you'll be with me in paradise. He might say, tomorrow you'll be with me in paradise. He might say, you know, you walk with me. You, you make these decisions to follow me. And when you take your last breath, you will be with me in paradise. And you know what? I know when your last breath is going to be, but I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you. And I love that so much because he knows the number of our days. We don't have to know the number of our days. That's what's so cool about the intimacy that Moses had with the Lord when in chapter 25 through 31 of Exodus. It's so beautiful because the Lord knew what was going to be at base camp. The Lord knew the hearts of what was brewing inside of the hearts of base camp. He knew that the golden calf was going to be there. And he wasn't speaking to Moses in chapter 25, chapter 26. And then all of a sudden he sees something brewing in the hearts and say, you know what, Moses, never mind. Never mind. He gave him the blueprints. Because inside the blueprints, there were also provisions for a sacrifice. There were provisions for redemption. The same way there are provisions for redemption today. Today. The question is, who are those who have ears to hear? And how can they hear unless there's a preacher? How can they preach unless they are sent? Remember, 
How beautiful are those who bring the news of, of the good news. How beautiful are the feet. Your feet might be going in one direction one day. Yeah, my feet are taking me to the strip club. My feet are taking me, you know, to the finest crack dealer. They, they get their crack from Chiapas, Mexico. My feet are taking me to get the best meth on the planet. My feet are taking me to wherever. But you come to Christ. Where's your knees taking you? Your knees take you to your, you know, you fall to your knees, you repent, you come up, and then where are your feet taking you? In obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings. Redemption. The aftermath of sin. The aftermath of the golden calf. Remember the Holy Spirit skipped over Simon because his heart wasn't right before the Lord. Something was going on in his heart. It was bitterness. What is revealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revealed that to Peter and Peter called him on it. Remember Simon was like, hey, you know, you do these things in the, in the name of the Lord. I want to do it too. Here, let me pay you. I'll give you a hundred bucks. Let me. He said, you know what? Your money perished with you. You need to repent. It's not about the work of the Lord. There is the work of the Lord, but it's always about the Lord of the work. He's the one who's doing the work. We just get to be partakers. Partakers, God's fellow workers. Some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the increase. Look at verse 3 now. And they received from Moses... All the offering, emphasis on all, all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Every morning, the people of Israel would come and give their offerings. You know what's so cool about this? I think a lot of pastors, a lot of elders, a lot of co-pastors, a lot of deacons, a lot of bishops, they need to read verse Three, because all the offering that was given to the work of the service for making the sanctuary and they were people were bringing them it was all of it was given was for the service of the lord moses didn't say hey you know what i need a raise moses didn't say oh you know what thank you for this offering i'm gonna go out and buy a new house oh thank you for this offering i'm gonna go out and get a couple new cars oh thank you for the offering i'm gonna buy a second house Moses gets a new car. He gets a fat ride. No, the people are giving to the Lord. And it's used to glorify the Lord. Not for the glorification of man. That's the bidding of hirelings. Oh, thank you for this offering unto the Lord. Now I get to go buy my new car. Now I get to get a raise. I get to go buy my second house. No, that's the way of the hireling. You say, what's the hireling? Turn with me to John chapter 10 really quick. John chapter 10. The Lord speaks to us about a hireling. In John 10, verse 12, but a hireling, verse 12, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf, sees the wolf coming 
and leaves the sheep and flees. You know, a hireling is a scaredy cat. A hireling is a chicken. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. You see? That's what a hireling does. Doesn't own the sheep. And you know, the sheep might come and say, here's my offering to the Lord. Here's my offering to the Lord. And everything's fine and dandy, except what happens when danger comes. The hireling. It's revealed. You know, when danger comes, a lot is going to be revealed. A lot is revealed when danger comes. A lot will be revealed when the last days come. Because the hirelings will flee. Because they're chickens. Chickens. Freaky cats. The danger comes. He sees the wolf coming. And leaves the sheep and flees. The hireling is only concerned about himself. That's a hireling. If we're Episcopal, I'd say a hireling is only concerned about herself or itself. But we're not Episcopal. Well, biblically, we're, you know, there's Episcopalia. Man just turned it, changed it, just like man did with the rainbow. You read the Bible about the rainbow, beautiful, insanely beautiful. And you look up at the rainbow in the sky with the knowledge of what the Lord says about a rainbow. You look up at a rainbow in the sky today and you just weep, cry like, wow, Lord, thank you for your promises. And then you get in your car and you're, you know, you look at the bumper sticker and it's a rainbow. And you're like, oh man, you know, that's what man does. They change, change things and concepts. Things that were once beautiful, all of a sudden they're different. In verse 13, the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. That's the hireling. I am the good shepherd. These are the words of our Lord. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known by my own. That's what's so beautiful about our Lord. The protection he gives us by his truth and in his truth. And abiding in him is where the safety is. But a hireling, the wolf comes and he's a scaredy cat. And that's what's so cool about this passage in Exodus 36 verse 3. The people are giving an offering unto the Lord. In obedience to the Lord. And 100% of it is given for the service of the Lord. 100%. That's what I love about, you know, these Old Testament passages, the New Testament passages, especially when Paul's like, I don't want your money. He says, you know, biblically speaking, I have every right to take money to earn a living by, you know, the what I do for, for you and proclaiming the good news. But I deny it all. I don't want it. So look what happens here in chapter in chapter 36 of Exodus. Verse 4. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. So, you know, they, they start they're doing they start doing the work, you know, people are giving the 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 the, the craftsmen, they start to do the work, and then something happens. They come to Moses. 
Hey, Moses, we got something to tell you. Okay, what, what, what is it? Verse 5, and they spoke to Moses saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. Much more. It's like an abundance. The people bring much more than enough. There's, you know, to have enough and to have much more than enough. It amplifies. It kind of shows, you know, the heart of the people is different than, you know, when Moses came down from the mountain the second time, it's much better than it was the first time. Redemption. You see a different Israel, a different people. Moses came down from the mountain the first time. And then, you know, it's like what he saw with the golden calf. And, you know, there's that ugly side. There's that desolation of sin. Especially the, what he, the disgusting things he saw. But then he goes back up to the mountain. Lord, what do I do? Seeks the Lord. Goes back, has intimacy with the Lord. He comes back down, gives them directives. A different people. A different people. Don't forget that the first time there was the first when Moses came down from the mountain, there was a little period, a little, uh, dare I say, a cycle of judgment. You say, what do you mean a cycle of judgment? Well, read the Bible. Judgment doesn't just come once, twice, thrice. You see several moments in history where God judges the people. In the aftermath of judgment, you see a different people. What about the judgment that's coming? The judgment that's coming. This is going to be like the heaviest judgment. Biblically speaking, the heaviest judgment. When you read the Bible, it's like, man, there's some heavy judgment out there. But then the judgment that's coming, that's like the final wrath of God. And the Christian is the one who says, hey, get in the boat. Judgment is coming. Get in the boat. What do you mean get in the boat? Abide in Christ. He is the ark. And so it says here, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses, I love this part so much. So Moses in verse 6 gave a commandment. And they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained <coughs> from bringing. The people were restrained from bringing. You see how beautiful this is? It says in verse 7, For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed to much never ever forget this that where god guides god provides where god guides god provides you think about moses coming down from the mountain with joshua he's an old man carrying these two tablets maybe uh, uh, joshua was holding his hand propping him up a little bit holding him by the arm propping this old guy up and they come down the mountain and they see the golden calf you know what i love so much Moses was like, okay, forget this. You know, the Lord made a mistake. You know, forget this. I'm, I'm, I'm done with these people. 
No, he, he interceded for the people. I mean, it was hardcore intercession when he's like, Lord, you know, Lord, if, 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 if these people aren't going to be redeemed, Lord, take my name out of the book of life. Take my name. I don't want to be in the book of life. It's like, not that he didn't want to be there. It's like how much love he had for his people. You know who it reminds me of? Uh, Paul. Paul was like, you know, I, I wish that, you know, I could be taken out you know, of your promises, Lord, and your and my people, my brethren, Israel. You see, selfless. Jesus Christ dying on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, when he's dying, Lord, don't hold this against them. Because he loves God and he loves people. All these beautiful men, beautiful women. We're going to read more about the women. Love God more than people. It's not to say they hate people. They love the people so much so that they're saying, the, the, the very ones that are stoning Stephen, he's saying, Father, don't hold this against them. Moses, Lord, take my name out of the book of life for the sake of these people. Paul says the same thing. Jesus Christ says the same thing. You know what I love about that? You see their hearts are no longer their hearts. Now what on earth do you mean? Their hearts are transformed. Their minds are transformed into the image of Christ. They think differently. That's what's so beautiful about spiritual transformation in Christ. Among other things. That's one of them. And they're saying, you know what? Stop bringing stuff. It's too much. You know, you guys, you come every morning, you give all this stuff, and we have more than enough, and you're giving more than what we need. So, you know, there's this new law. Stop giving. I think that's so beautiful. Moses trusted in the Lord. And you see these, this, these. That's what's so beautiful about, you know, verse chapter 32, you see the golden calf. 30, chapter 33, it's like, you know, that what happens with the golden calf and, you know, the what happens with Moses with the people. And it's like, man, this is terrible. But these, these chapters, chapter 35, 36, we're reading, it's like, well, this is so awesome. A people, different people who have repented. And now the Lord is like, whoa. You see, all these things are coming to pass. What, what, what the Lord told Moses on the mountain in his intimacy. So the material that we're given, the material was sufficient for the work. The material was sufficient for the work. Does that ring a bell? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 really quick. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 7. And this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth. The, the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, it's kind of a messed up church. The early chapters. And then you see repentance, redemption. And you see 2 Corinthians, it's a different church. The church in Corinth, the church in 2 Corinthians isn't the same church as 1 Corinthians. I mean, it's the same church, but... 
supernaturally speaking, in their hearts, in their minds, it's a different church because of repentance. Just like Israel. The first time Moses came down from the mountain, the second time Moses came down from the mountain, a different Israel in their hearts. Same Israel, but different in their hearts and minds. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, uh, Paul is saying, and lest, I sh- and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations. You see, Paul had intimacy with the Lord and the Lord was speaking to him. The Lord gave him visions. The Lord gave him dreams. And he had intimacy with the Lord. And, you know, and he didn't want to be, get puffed up. He didn't want to say, oh, yeah, look how awesome I am. No, he says, lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me or to beat me, lest I be exalted above measure. Because remember, in the church in Corinth, we haven't really studied it too much, but I reference it a lot. But in the church of Corinth, there was a lot of division in the church where people were they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos. There's all this division. And then, you know, in the, there was a little Bible study in a home group in Chloe's house. Another beautiful hero. And Chloe wrote a letter to Paul and said, hey, Paul, there's this stuff going on. And I love, you know, Paul didn't write back to Chloe. Hey, Chloe, you know, you're a tattletale. You're talking behind people's backs. You know, you're gossiping. He didn't do that. He wrote a letter back to the pastors. He says, hey, I hear this stuff is going on in your church. He didn't say, hey, Chloe's gossiping. Give her church discipline. No. He says, you guys, your rejoicing isn't good. Your rejoicing isn't good. You don't have to say something about church discipline. You know why people like church discipline in the last days? I mean, you talk to people. Talk to people who go to a, you know, a, 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 a Protestant church and they say, oh, I, don't, I used to be a Protestant, but you know what? I'm Reformed now. I want to go to a Reformed church. I want to go to a Presbyterian church. I want to go to a church that is Calvinistic or Neo-Calvinism. You know, because, uh, you know, it, it, it's modern day. You know, I'm not into those old things. So I like the, you know, Neo-Calvinist. So I'm going to go to these churches because there needs to be more church discipline. You see all this sin in the church, all this carnality in the church, and the church needs more discipline. I don't get that argument. I mean, I get it. But you know what? When truth, when the word of God is being taught, when the word of God, every jot, every tittle, line upon line, precept upon precept, and pastors and elders are doing what they're supposed to be doing, biblically, in accordance with the word of God, what Paul writes to T- Timothy and Titus, there's no need for church discipline. I mean, there is, there's provisions in the Bible about church discipline, but not the kind that carnal people seek. Carnal people like church discipline, meted out by carnal men. But the Holy Spirit does the work. The Holy Spirit cleans house. Remember, Jesus Christ cleans his own fish. 
you know, you sit down in the pew. Say we're a church of 100 people and we're all pew Christians. And we come into the church. We sit down and, you know, we sit next to each other. We're like, you know, friends. And we sit next to each other like, oh, yeah, let's see what this guy has to say today. Or the pastor, you know. <laughs> we'll see what the pastor has to say today. And we sit there and it's a feel-good message. Social club, you know, feel good message, you know, 15 minutes long so I don't get tired, you know, and then after that I get to go watch TV in another room, you know, with a bunch of guys. I get to go hang out with the fellas. The ladies get to go hang out with the, I don't know, the ladies, the ladies. You know, you get to go hang out over there. The guys get to hang out with the fellows, the fellas, and, the, you know, the kids go here. And it's like, okay, that's cool. And then they spend like two hours there. An hour, two hours, 15-minute sermon, you know, two-hour fellowship. Yeah, there's something wrong with that picture. Then you see, like, you know, all this carnality start to rise up. And then people say, oh, I want church discipline to address this carnality. We need to have church discipline to address this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. So I want church discipline. But, you know, when the Word of God is being taught, and say, for example... There's that church. And we say, okay, you know, it's a different church. And we sit next to each other in the pews. We happen to be friends. We sit next to each other. And then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, I'm beating on my wife and cheating on my wife at home. And then, you know, drug dealers are sitting next to me. And it's like all these things. And then the pastor starts to teach. And it's the word of God. And it's like a knife in my heart. Whoa, this is not a feel-good message. That if I do this, I'm going to burn in hell. If I keep doing this, it's like a millstone. The Lord, Jesus Christ, red letter says, I got to throw, tie a millstone around my neck, the rope around my neck, tie a millstone around the other side, and throw it over a bridge and kill myself and die. And the Lord is saying that's better to do if I, you know, if, if I do this with my kids, if I don't teach them and train them up. If I call, cause a little one to stumble. Man, I, I, I like my crack. I like my meth. I like my whatever. And this pastor, this so-called pastor, whoever he is, he's speaking these things and says that if I keep doing this, that I'm going to burn in hell if I don't repent. Whoa. You see, that's what I mean when I talk about, you know, the Holy Spirit cleans house. You could say, oh, you know, that's that's disrespectful. You mean he cleans house like he cleans he cleans out a church? No, I mean he cleans house inside your heart, inside your mind. The Holy Spirit cleans house. That's the beauty of truth. And so Paul, you know, he's telling the church, he writes this letter to the church. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my red letters, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Never forget those words. The words of our Lord, my grace, the grace of Jesus Christ is sufficient for you. Remember in the Old Testament, the, the building of the tabernacle, 
and the material was sufficient for the work to be done and in accordance with the new covenant, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul writing now. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities or weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, that's the mind of a Christian. That's the mind of a believer. Embrace your weakness. Embrace your weakness and give it to Christ because Christ gives you something in return. What is that? Grace. Which is sufficient for you. Because his strength is made perfect in weakness. It's the acknowledgement of saying, Lord, I can't. And I wonder in your heart of hearts if there's a little voice that kind of says, you're right. <laughs> you can't. But I can. That's what the Lord is saying to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in, in weakness. And Paul cries out, for when I am weak, then I am as strong as the strength of our Lord. You say, what do you mean? Is Christ in you? It's Christ in you. That's where the strength is. And so all of a sudden, you know, we go back to this passage in the Old Testament in Exodus 36. In verse 7, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. You see this overabundance. And I love verse 8 because it kicks off something so beautiful. You remember all those studies we had in prior weeks from chapter 30, 25 to chapter 31? And I specifically made mention of blueprints. You're probably tired of that word. Blueprints. Because the Lord was giving Moses blueprints. And now you see the work is beginning starting here in verse 8. The actual, like, putting things together. What, you know, the blueprints that Moses was given. And you say, well, wait a second. You know, in, in chapter 32 and 33, you see the golden calf. Actually, specifically in chapter 32, you see the golden calf. The golden calf wasn't part of the blueprint. You know what I say? Amen. Amen. The golden calf wasn't part of the blueprint. And I also say something else today. Neither is pornography. Neither is drugs. Neither is alcoholism. Neither is prostitution. Neither is fill in the blank. It's not part of the blueprint. Therefore, repent. Repent and be transformed. You see how beautiful this is, the redemption. And so here in verse 8, you know, it kicks off something beautiful because all the blueprints that were given to Moses, all of a sudden, you know, Moses, you see the faithfulness of Moses too. Because Moses didn't come down from the mountain the first time and say, oh, okay, you know, we're done, you know, this is this can't be. 
No, he remained faithful to the Lord. And also faithful to the people. The Lord first. He interceded for the people. That's why you see Moses as a type of Christ. All these people in the Bible. Joshua, a type of Christ. And a lot of times you look at the females, it's a type of bride. You know, it's husband and wife. The two become one. The two become one. And so look what happens here in verse 8. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made, and now we begin like specifically the blueprints, ten curtains woven of fine linen and of blue, purple, and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. They made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits. The curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made fifty clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasp that it might be one tabernacle one tabernacle i'll say it again one tabernacle with many parts you see one tabernacle with many parts and i say to those who have ears let them have ears let them hear in verse 14, he made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six, cur six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain. That is uh, outermost in one set and 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain of the second set. He also made 50 bronze clasps to couple the tents together that it might be one. Then he made a covering. You see, a covering. A covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of badger skins above that. Meaning, there was a blood sacrifice because it's animal skins, a ram and a badger skin blood sacrifice remember life is in the blood life for life blood atoning for sin and remember in verse 19 the very beginning then he made a covering it's a covering all these things one little verse in the old testament a loaded 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 verse because what it means to the new covenant believer today, right here and now at this very moment, who is your covering? You say, I don't have a covering. You know what I say? Get a covering. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. The blood sacrifice, the offering for your sin, for my sin as a covering 
These are things that are going to be revealed more and more and more in the last days. Because you know why? People who go to church, you might have a cross on the on the outside. You might have the word Christ or, you know, the word Christian on the outside. But inside, it's straight up poison what they're, what they're teaching. And all these things are going to be exposed in the last days. A bunch of people with zero covering. And who are the ones to tell them, hey, you need a covering? Oh, my pastor says, I don't have to know anything about the last days. Oh, my pastor says it's okay to take the mark of the beast. Oh, my pastor says that, you know, whatever. And you say, well, this is what the Bible says. Let's follow what the Bible says. This is the guidance that the Lord has given. This is the truth that he has given. And you know what? You need a covering. You need a covering. Repent. All the passages, you know, the very, very beginning of Revelation not the very beginning, but chapter 2 and 3, which is pretty close to the beginning. You see the red letters there in chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation. You know, the book of Revelation, is there's some scary things in there. There's some beautiful things in there too. But there's some scariness in the book of Revelation. And you read chapter 2, chapter 3, and you know what? You see the exhortation of the Lord. Repent, 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 repent. It's a message for the church of the last days. Yeah, I see you got this going on. I like this about you. This is pretty cool. I like this. But you know what? You need to repent because you left your first love. You need to repent. Or else I will take your name out of the book of life. You need to repent. You need a covering. Covering. In verse 20. For the tabernacle, he made boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits and the width of each board, a cubit and a half. Each board had two, two tenons for binding to one, one to another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle and he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver. He made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets, each, each two sockets, each under the, under each of the boards, wait, Two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards. And there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. And they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus, he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far side westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold and he made a veil of blue purple and scarlet thread these are colors of royalty blue purple and scarlet colors of royalty 
you know, speaking prophetically, you know, the, the first coming of Jesus Christ, it it kind of it signifies the kingship of a coming Messiah, the coming Messiah. But speaking prophetically into our future. You know, when the third temple is erected, you're going to start to see certain colors of the fabrics inside the temple. And the colors are going to be these royal colors in accordance with the law. Purple, scarlet, and blue. Symbolic of the lordship of the coming king of kings and lord of lords. These are things that will happen. But these specific colors are colors of royalty. That's why, like, even in modern day times, you look at, like, you know, in certain kingdoms of the world, you know, you, you see where they still have, like, a monarchy or, you know, they still have a king or a queen. You look at the colors, their robes, their, all this, the, the regalia. It's like these certain colors that are associated with royalty. And it says, and fine woven linen, it was worked with an artistic design of cherubim. He made... He made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. You know, in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus is the one who says, I am the door. I am the door. You see here, this prophetic of the Messiah, this tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. These are things that the religious leaders, when Jesus Christ came the first time, the religious leaders should have put, started to put all these things together and with their knowledge of the law. And that's the danger of the letter of the law. That's the danger of the Hebrew roots movement, people who want to go back to the law. That's why Paul says in Galatians, do you not hear the law? Tell me you who attempt to be uh, uh, saved by the law, do you not hear the law? Do you not hear the law? The screen, the screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Jesus Christ in John 10 verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Red letters. And so here in verse 37, and fine woven linen made by a weaver and its five pillars with their hooks and he overlaid their capitals or their highest point and their rings with gold, but their five sockets were bronze. You know, you say like, wow, you know, we flew through this. We flew through these verses and yeah, we did fly through these verses. You know why? Because we received the blueprints of these in chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. You know, these are the blueprints that the Lord gave to Moses in his intimacy. And then Moses comes down from the mountain and here he is with the people. He gives these directions to the people. And now we're starting to see the fulfillment of the blueprints. The fulfillment of the blueprints. If you ever like built a house, you know, you talk with the contractor. The contractor shows you the blueprints. It's in accordance with all the engineers, the architects. They work together, do these things. And it's, 
exactly how you want to have it. You see the blueprints and you give the command, okay, execute, go handle business, go do it. Then, you know, five months later, six months later, however long it takes, you know, then you can move into your house. You can move into your house and it's like, wow, the blueprint said this and this turned out better than what I thought it was going to be. And you get to, it's built. And that's what we're seeing here. The blueprints went from God to Moses, from Moses to the people. And you're starting to see the fulfillment of these things. So it's not just like, wow, you know, we flew through these verses. Yeah, we flew through these verses. But understand, the Lord is doing the work. The Lord is building something beautiful. Tabernacle. A noun in the Old Testament, but a verb in the New Testament. What do you mean a a verb in the New Testament? Well, that's what the Lord Jesus wants to do with you and with me and to all who have ear for it. Everybody. He desires that to tabernacle. To have oneness with you. But the problem is sin. The problem is the golden calf. That's the problem. That's not to say, man, you know what? You know, God predestined me to have a golden calf. Therefore, I'm toast. No. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You have a golden calf. It's to say, take that golden calf and throw it in the trash. Fall on your knees before the Lord and repent. And believe in Jesus Christ. Fulfillment of the blueprints. And you know what? Eternity was written on your heart. The very one who formed you in your mother's womb. Put your bones and sinews and muscles together. Give it a little, you see like pictures of the babies, you know, and they're in, in the mother's womb, you know. They're like little, you know, like dark things. Well, I mean, their eyes, but you know, they're like dark. You know, it's like, wow, I can't see the form of a baby. Then you see, oh, cool, there's the arms. You know, there's the legs. Cool, there's the head. Man, that's a big melon on that kid. And then all of a sudden the body starts to get bigger, match the head, you know. And it's like, whoa, you know, these things are forming. And then the baby is born and you're like, wow, beautiful baby. Cool. But the same thing happens in the life of a believer. You look at before the days of being a believer. Is that man, you know, here I am seating, seated at the throne of my heart. I'm doing life the way I want to do life. Yeah, I hear these Christians talk about their Bible, talk about Jesus. Yeah, that's cool. But I like my crack. I like my meth. I like my pornography. I like my strip clubs. I like beating on my wife. I like this. I like that. Whatever it is. That's the golden calf. It's to say, take this golden calf and throw it in the trash. Because you know what? That golden calf can't save you. That golden calf brings judgment upon you. Say, what do I do? I'm cut to the heart. You're hurting my feelings. What do I do? Repent and be saved. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, the Lord does something beautiful. Like the fulfillment of blueprints. The construction starts to happen. The same way a new believer is in the natural sense, the same thing happens in a spiritual sense. You are born again. And then all of a sudden the construction starts to happen. The blueprints, the that's what's so cool about Jesus Christ being a carpenter. 
you know, before he started his earthly ministry, building things, doing all kinds of things. That carpenter is the same one by the power of the Holy Spirit who goes into your heart and starts changing things, knocking out walls, putting new cabinets in, everything. He'll do it. He does it with everybody. That's what God desires. Remember, God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. A Calvinist would say, yeah, God predestines certain people to heaven and certain people to hell. The ones that are predestined to hell, it's impossible for them to believe. It's garbage. False doctrine. False teaching. Hirelings. Don't believe that. Is to say, you know what? You believe, you know, repent, believe, receive. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Lord will do something beautiful in your life. You know, when you see golden calves, you know, we live in a culture where you see golden calves all over the place. You know, all shapes and sizes in whatever form it takes. But whenever you see those things, you could be like so disgusted. Like, man, this is so gross. I'm running to the hill. Don't do that. Just pause in your tracks for a moment. And remember Israel. In Exodus 32 and Exodus 36. Remember Israel. Remember redemption. And always, always, always stay hopeful. So we'll end our study here and pick up next week. Uh, Love you guys. Miss you guys. God bless you.